0: Morning again. If you would, Romans six. This is the only slide today, just the page number and the chapter. Uh, If you picked up a house Bible, page seven eighty four. And if you're taking notes, there there will be plenty of other things to write down, but nothing on the screen. So just uh, listen up and pay attention. We're doing all the sermons this month are based in either stories of people's baptisms in the Bible or just teachings about baptisms in the Bible, and so. We've circled around Romans 6 a little bit, but today we're just going to get right down into the heart of it, at least the first uh, four verses, and so that's where we're going to be today. Uh, When I went to school my freshman year, I got this, studies in the life of Christ. Are you with me? Now, I went to school, let me just kind of get my Bible here, Uh, let me just find the Gospels. The Gospels are where we find the stories of Jesus, so we'll start with Matthew here, and we'll go all the way through uh, John 21. And so there it is. That's, uh, there's my notes. That's all we had. This is what we have of the story of Jesus in our Bibles, correct? Now, I have a small Bible here, and there's about 100 pages that you turn, so 200 total front and back. That's it. Yours might be less if it's a bigger Bible. They can fit more words on the screen. So I went to college. This is all I knew. And then that's kind of all I thought we would do. Like, I was going to be a youth minister, so I thought that we would never use this, and we would just kind of learn how to be a youth guy. But I went to youth group every week, and uh, this is what we studied. And, this was, and then I get there, and it's like, oh, there's more. There's more about Jesus that you did not know, right? And so they gave us a book uh, like that. And I'm sure you had books like that when you were in school. Anybody? Anybody have something this big? I'm still reading this, by the way, 20 20 years later. Uh, Now, there were rumors circulating in my dorm my freshman year that on the final exam of this particular class, there would be a question at the end of the test that simply was this. Did you read the book? And there were two options for your answer. Yes, no. There was no option for, like, I really wanted to read the book, but I just didn't. Like, it was in my heart to read it. Uh, there was no option for, like, I, was go- I started to read it, and then I got sick, and I couldn't read it. Or there was no option for my roommate burned it or whatever. Like, there- it was just a yes, or you either read the book or you didn't read the book. So then there's these rumors circulating. Like, we don't know how much—I mean, there's 80 questions or something on the exam. There's maps and words and language and history— but then there's this question and you start to assume that this question must count for a lot. And so you start getting mixed stories of course from upperclassmen losers that say, "You know what, if you if you didn't read the book, you might fail the class." You know what I'm saying? Like, so you're you're sort of stressing before you even get started in this thing and it's like if I say no, then maybe I'll fail. If I if I read it and say yes, then everything is fine and you just don't know how much this particular and this is the kind of book, I mean, like This looks like something you've got to want to read. You can muscle your way through maybe this, but the rest you really got to like desire to read this. So, anyway, so this just sat, you know, on the shelf. (laughs) So, test day came, and there's all of us in this room. My roommate was sitting beside me, and I know that he didn't read the book because I don't even think he bought the book. Um, You know, there's that guy, there's always that guy. And so, the test hits the table, and we start looking through, and there it is on the very last page. The rumors were true. Did you read the book? Yes or no? Now, I don't know if the professors thought it was funny, like they heard about the rumors. They just threw it on there. They didn't care or what. No one let us in on anything, but all we knew was that there it was, and I'm freaking out because literally this didn't happen. And so uh, I'm looking around, you know, like who's going, who's, who's doing this class again, and my roommate is sitting there, and he looks at me, and he goes, <laughs> we all did that, actually. Uh, but he looks at me and says, because I'm looking at him going, I know you didn't touch this book. And he looks at me, and he says, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> Are you with me? So the, the thing that went through his head was, you know what? In the big scheme of things, this is not really that important of an issue. And Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and it's there. It's available. And so you know what? I'm just not going to tell the truth here and just check yes, and then I'll read it later. Maybe he was sort of prorating his truth, like saying, I'll just sort of get around. Yes, meaning I will read that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold true on it. I'll pay it back, whatever. And so, like, there's this whole thing going on. I'm going, I can't, I can't lie because God will kill me. That's what I'm thinking. And so uh, he just says, I'll ask for forgiveness later. I don't know if you've ever, has anybody ever done that? Where you just kind of, no, you're lying. Okay, so uh, (laughs) this is what I call that. And we're about to get into Romans 6 here. I call that, and we do this all the time, misinterpreting grace. We do it all the time. And grace is easily misinterpreted, and you'll see why in a moment. But just keep that in your heads as we move through this. All right, Romans 6. Paul, writer of Romans. Romans is a pretty deep swim, by the way. And so you're going to hear some of that today, and I'll do my best to bring it uh, to the surface. But it begins in verse 1, and he's asking this question of the church in Rome. What shall we say then? Which means something came before this that is leading to this question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Just let that sit for a moment because it's a pretty astounding question. And you can hear the reasoning. Well, grace is there, it's available, it's pretty amazing. Christ died on the cross, sins for the world, blah, blah, blah. Well, we don't want to leave that dormant. Why don't we just sin so that grace can do its thing? That's what, it, that's what it reads like. It's an astounding question. I said this last week a little bit, and I'll just say it again if you weren't here. But this was, and it's not just his, but this was the Russian monk's uh, Rasputin's doctrine of salvation. You, you experience salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. You don't know what grace is until you need it, right? And that's true. But there's a step further in saying, look, I, I can't really experience grace unless I just experience the other end of things. Maybe you've seen this bumper sticker, bookmark, whatever, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I don't want to make fun of you um, if you have that bookmark, but I'm going to. The, um, no, I think, I think the genuine heart of a statement like that is true. I don't know why Christians are just mentioned of that. Nobody's perfect, and everybody knows that Christians aren't perfect, uh, but it's, you know, look, I'm not perfect. I don't know how we ever claim that we would be, but I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. Therefore, it's like this, uh, it's a resignation of sorts, like sort of a, a, uh, a prediction of future decisions. Well, I'm not perfect, so, you know, whatever. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. And we like that kind of God, the ideology of that kind of God that would extend grace no matter what. We like that, which he does. He extends grace no matter what. And we like the thought of being free from uh, the penalties of mistakes, knowing that God will always forgive, which he does. And sometimes we even willfully make wrong decisions out of the knowledge of God's grace and that it's greater than anything I can say or do, which it is. So sometimes we move into decisions based on we know that God will forgive. Uh, When I was in youth ministry, the the most rewarding and frightening thing to do was to drive the church van. The reason is it's full of kids, got the music going. For some reason, when you have the wheel in your hand, the students, because they're bright, they don't think that you can hear them. Because I'm driving and concentrating on the road, I can't hear this conversation 15 inches behind me. That's what they think. And so here's the girl behind me talking about the sex she's having, and she's the elder's daughter and the mother and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, (sighs) (laughs) you know, trying to take notes on my knee, like, okay, I'm going to have a conversation with your father and whatever. But it's like they just don't think they can hear you. And the thing is, like, then you hear them say sort of, you know, are you, going, are you going to the thing Friday? And we're on the way to a youth retreat, which is always sort of crazy. Uh, are you going to the thing on Friday next week or whatever? Yeah, there's going to be lots of this and lots of that. And she's like, oh, yeah, but what's your mom going to say? And then inevitably it sort of comes out like this. Eh, it doesn't matter. Because she loves me. She'll, it'll be fine. She'll forgive me. Or he'll, my dad, he'll forgive me. He loves me. He thinks I'm the greatest thing. I'm his gift. And sometimes, like, and I know you did this too, but we make decisions as high school students. We know they're the wrong decisions, but we make them knowing that our parents will let it go. Over time, they'll love us through it. Are you with me? Now, the thing is, we like that kind of God, but we don't like that kind of earthly relationship unless we're, of course, the one on the other end. Imagine yourself having a child, and they're a teenager. Is that the kind of relationship that you want from your son or daughter? That, oh, it doesn't matter what I do because my mom or dad will forgive me. Is that, the kind, is that a healthy relationship? No. And the truth is, that relationship over time never gets stronger. It actually weakens. Particularly because the child begins to lose total respect for the parent. Begins to lose total respect for mom or dad or both. It weakens, actually. It does not strengthen. And what feels great, because mom lets me do everything, or dad lets me, it's never strong. It's a weak relationship. And so you have to insert that sort of truth into, is this the way that I should treat God as well? And that's what Paul is. Ra- that's the question. Just because grace is there, does that mean that you should go on and keep doing what you're doing? Now let me talk about grace versus debits and credits for a moment. When God decided that grace would be the base economy of his relationship with us, it was a great risk because grace is dependent on me. It's dependent on him. And when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about total forgiveness and mercy beyond what we normally allow in our own relationships. Let me just give you some examples. In our relationships, we tend to keep score, right? Right? Grace doesn't. This is why in the Corinthians text that, or that it's read at weddings a lot, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is this, love is that. One of them is love does not keep record of wrongs. I always sort of pause there in the wedding ceremony and going, are you hearing me here? Now, it's not a, it's not a text about marriage. It's a text about God's grace and his love. And it reminds us that we tend to keep score, but grace doesn't. We have a limit on forgiveness. Secondly, whereas grace never runs out, that's a head trip I know because it's like we're sort of like that one more time and that's it. But grace never runs out. Uh, three, we want payback often, like you cut me off, I'll cut you off, or I'm at least going to honk my horn so you know that I know that you cut me off and. I hate you for it even though I don't know you. Right? That's the way we process. You know, they did this to me. I want them to, you know. How many times has someone sped by you and you're like, man, I hope the cop pulls him over. And then when I pass him, I can honk the horn and, you know. That may just be me. It may just be a confession time here. We want retribution whereas grace carries the load. It pays the full debt. I like this one. We often want people to change before we accept them while grace goes first. Look back in chapter 5 of Romans, just, I mean, just back up, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this very classic Romans text. While we were still sinners... It does not say that Christ waited for us to get it together. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, backing up, is his demonstration of his love for us. And that encapsulates what grace is. It does not wait for us to change before it makes its first move. It goes in first every time. Grace is an amazing thing. But the problem here, at least in this church that Paul is writing to, is that they're confusing or misinterpreting grace. They understand. I mean, partly when Paul writes a letter, it's a reiteration of things that they already know. He's reminding them. Sometimes he's teaching them things for the first time. But they clearly have gone through this in their heads because they're asking this question among each other, uh, amongst each other. Like, why don't we just go on doing what we're doing because grace is alive and well. We'll just go on sinning. Therefore, grace can get a workout. It can increase. Now, so he's writing them, encouraging them, admonishing them, challenging them, pushing them to stop asking that question. What shall we say then? Now, there are a couple of things I want to talk about. When it comes to the love and the grace of God, there are two extremes. um, And go with me on this. One is this. If we start to see God's love as something that we have to earn, which we all go in and out of that, but maybe you live in that. If we see God's love as something that we have to earn, we often, again, we often think that it is, then we will end up so unsure of our standing with God and so afraid of failure in his presence. And forgive the the elementary wording here, but we'll go spiritually insane. We'll just go spiritually insane. Let me give you some examples. We will start to see all of life's difficulties and hardships as a result of our personal failures. Now, some of those may be, you did this and this is the repercussion, you reap what you sow, etc. But over time, we will begin to see everything that's difficult in our lives, all the hardships, all the things that are struggles, as a result of our sinfulness. God hates me. He's pushing these things onto me. And so we become uh, so focused on being perfect that we absolutely miss grace altogether. This is historically, in, in a very dark way, part of the origin of child sacrifice. Because you just keep offering things to your God until you have nothing left but your own child. Because God is not responding to our sacrifices, saying, thank you very much, you can move along. So you're always left to wonder. This is very interesting. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, when you read through all these things, they're very interesting, very strange, very confusing at times. But all of the sacrifices were for unintentional sins. They were for, you know, I accidentally killed a guy in a fight, right? So there's a sacrifice for that. There's a sacri- they're all for unintentional sins. But there is no sacrifice in the Old Testament for willful sin, which means there's nothing you can do except sit at the mercy of God. The other stuff is technically for your own benefit. Offer the sacrifice, feel better about yourself, perhaps. But when it comes to willful sin, there's no sacrifice for that, except to just sit at the feet of God's grace. Isn't that beautiful? Another thing that happens when we see God's love as something we have to earn is that we start interpreting hardships as, quote-unquote, a lack of faith. A lack of faith. I've been in enough hospital rooms as a pastor of people who are dying to see this happen many times, where there's the family in there, they've, they've been in there for a time, they've been praying, but it's the end of the road for the person. But inevitably, there's another family member in there, or a couple and they have the 33-pound Bible with eight years of bulletins in there because they're spiritual, and they're clutching it, and they're calling the family just to have more faith. If you just have more faith, then, I mean, never mind that she's 99, right? And it's been a great run for her. Or never mind that cancer just had its way with her, and it's over. It's the way life happens. There's this, always this person saying it's, a, it's an issue of faith. You have a lack of faith. If you would, turn to Matthew 8. This is sort of where this comes from. This is, I love this story. In Matthew 8, and I hope to kind of throw a wrench in here so that you can see this story in a new way very quickly, of course. Verse 23 then he, Jesus, got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. This is very similar to the Jonah story where the boat's going down and Jonah's sleeping. So the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, we're going to drown. Save us, right? We're going to, These are fishermen. These are people of the water. They understand. It's like when you're on the, the airplane and... You notice that the flight attendants haven't got up, but they're still sort of strapped in and they're those are the people I watch. Like if they're just throwing the peanuts and not getting up and walking them down, something's up. They know better than anybody that something's wrong. So the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You have little what? faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Miracle. Amazing. Verse 27, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So this is the phrase, ye have little faith. But notice something here. The calming of the storm happened in the midst of their unbelief, not as a result of their faith. Are you with me? Let that sit. That often, when we hear this, like even if it's just a conversation in our own head, that it's an issue of lack of faith, the story where that comes from is a miracle that's done out of no faith, no belief. And so sometimes, if we feel like we get God's love, we get God's grace because we work for it, then we miss grace altogether. The other extreme is something you've already guessed. When I do understand the ins and outs of God's grace and all that it does, the risk that God takes with me is that I will misread it and take advantage of it and of him. And so this is why Paul says back in Romans 6, why are we asking this question? Right? Why are we asking the question, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2. By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, Back up into uh, the the chapter before, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, sorry. This is a pretty deep, confusing couple of verses, but let me do my best to bring it to the surface for you. Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 20. The law was added, so that's the law of Moses, the teachings of God, the way, the commandments, and so forth. The law was added so that trespass or sin or failure may increase. (laughs) So, God gives the law so that we can screw it up. That's kind of how you read it. That's the message version right there. God gives us the law. God gives us the, the commandments so that our failures may increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, we take a deep breath. Okay, well, that's at least some good news. So that just as sin reigned in death, and that's a look back to this whole thing he talks about with Adam, that through Adam we all die. So also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 20, again, the law was added so that trespass may increase. Let me do my best to explain this. There are two meanings to this and one result. The first meaning is what I just call the wet paint sign. What do you do when you see a wet paint sign? You test it, right? If there's no wet paint sign, what do you do? Nothing. You walk on by. But you're in the mall, you're in the bathroom, wherever, wet paint. I don't know, let's see if that's really wet. <laughs> yep. Are you with me? So part of what Paul is saying is just practical. It's just a reality of the way things are. God gives the law, which means there was a time when there was none. So God gives the law, the commandments, all the teachings. And because he gives that, because we're people... We push against it. We test it. We touch the wall and go, "Yep, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have committed adultery. That's totally true. Dang it. Shouldn't have murdered. I shouldn't. Have, shouldn't have done these things." And so, whatever you know, what what Paul is saying here is with with the uh, the, the advent of the law and the teachings and the commandments, mistakes increase because we're people. But the other thing here is. Part of this means, maybe most of this, is when I'm given the law, when I'm given the boundaries, when I'm given the the, the stipulations, particularly from God, I begin to recognize, if I'm honest with myself, that I fall way short. I begin to recognize my true weaknesses. If you can, turn to uh, James 1. And this is sort of the other side of that teaching. It's more of a, a, a challenge. But James says it this way in chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We got that. Verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away immediately uh, and forgets what he looks like. So James is saying it's just not possible unless you're just that forgetful. It's just not possible to look into the teachings of God and not see yourself as someone who is way short. That's what he's saying. And so if you, if you hear the teachings, if you read them, if you're listening to them, if you're talking through them, if you're wanting to follow them, and yet you sort of walk away and go, it doesn't apply to me because I'm above that, then you're like someone who just forgets what they look like after they look in the mirror. It's a humorous statement. And so the law was added so that trespass might increase is also about when I have all this in front of me, It's just easy for me to see where I fall short. And therefore, maybe my sin didn't really increase. It just became evident. It just became evident. But then he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Obviously speaking, ultimately, of Christ's death on the cross, coming and covering all of that. And just as sin reigned in death, he says, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the two meanings are the wet paint and then just the recognition of my own weaknesses. But the result is the same. The result ends up in the same place, and it's this. I won't survive without grace. That's that's the result. I mean, if you read through the law, the Old Testament law, the, what you come out of, if you're honest with yourself, what you come out on the other side with is simply a recognition and a realization that I can't do that. There's no way. And I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need some grace. And so, back in Romans 6, Paul is addressing this question because perhaps people misinterpreted that. Oh, it's supposed to increase. It's supposed to get bigger. It's supposed to amplify. But he comes back down into chapter 6 saying, By no means, verse 2, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized, there's the word of the month, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what? A new life. Paul uses baptism as a reminder of their new life in Christ. If you turn forward just to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, let me just give you three quick ways that Paul is using baptism as a reminder. Uh, He talks about being baptized into Christ, but in chapter 10... This is another example of what that means, but in verse 2, it says they, speaking of Israel, passing through the sea, you know, all the stories uh, that we read in the Old Testament, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So there are two things going on here. It's a call, it, he's calling their attention back to a decision, and the Israelites, they began to follow Moses. Moses was their leader. Moses was the one that they were called to follow, and their passing through the sea, Paul equates to a baptism into Moses, into his leadership. But there's also a picture here of Exodus. A lot of the New Testament is sort of a new Exodus. And an Exodus, in the mind of an Israelite, simply means out of slavery and into freedom. And so they're baptized into Moses, which means the old is gone, the new has come. I'm leaving whatever it was I was enslaved with and in, into a new life. And so the wording is the same back in Romans 6, that we were all baptized into Christ Jesus. And the language number two is very strong, death and burial, or burial then death. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's the image of an actual funeral where someone's in the casket, and they're clearly uh, dead. They're not living, but for us, particularly friends or family, it doesn't feel like a death until they're buried. And so the image here is of when you can no longer see the person. That's when they're dead. That's when we really experience the loss. And in baptism, because it's because the word itself means we're going down underneath in the rivers of the ancient world. You can't see them. They're gone. Baptized into death, buried with him into death. And then these last two words of verse 4 are so powerful into a new life. And this is the heart of what Paul is getting at with the Roman church saying, look, you died to that stuff, and it's a new life now. There are two ancient uses of the word baptism that I think are beautiful. One, well, one's scary, one's beautiful. One, the word was used to describe ships that had gone down at sea. So a ship that had sunk to the bottom was baptized. So the image to an ancient ear is the image of death and destruction and darkness and loss. But the other use of the term was for when you dyed cloth or leather. And so you would take the cloth and it's white and you dip it into the dye and you pull it out. And it's blue. And so baptism is not just associated, the word itself, with a sinking of a ship or death or loss, but it's also associated with transformation, change. It went in one way, and it came out a new way. And this is what Paul is illustrating. Baptism is a transformation. It's a a movement from the old to the new. That's why we have people not only sign their name on the baptistry, but date it. Because it's like that's, that's, you want to be able to see that. Now, we don't like to do this too much anymore uh, because all those people end up moving. That's what we figured out. Like, if you get baptized here, we'll see you later. You're moving to Oregon or wherever. But nevertheless, we have people write their name and date it. Because that's a very important date. We don't often know when we fully engaged with Jesus. Because maybe it's over time but we do know when we went in the water. And Paul is using that truth, that reality, that illustration saying, when you went in the water, it was a new day, and you have to live like it. And you have to live as though you have a new life. So in conclusion, just to bring this together, week one we talked about the baptism of Jesus, which again, for the Christian, is a little bit of a head trip because baptism is about following Jesus. So when Jesus got into the water, baptized by his cousin John, we have to determine what that was about. And what we learned that first week was simply that the baptism of Jesus was the inauguration of his ministry, really. His public ministry. We have no record of him doing anything prior to that. And so he's baptized into the mission that God had called him to, which is to come and to die for the sins of the world. And so when Jesus, or when Jesus goes into the water and is baptized by his cousin John, what he is saying is, I am on board with the mission that God has sent me here to do, with this, you know, the mission of his heavenly Father. So it's a not my will but yours be done. And though none of us in this room are dying for the sins of the world, thank goodness, We do pull that same lesson into our own baptism stories, saying that when we get into the water, it's a statement to the world and, of course, to God that I'm going your direction. And then last week in Acts 2, there were the 3,000 people that were baptized. Fantastic story. But it's at the end of the story, and it feels like it's just, it's not a throwaway statement, but it is just kind of a, and we're moving on here, and the transition is, oh, and 3,000 people were baptized somewhere in Jerusalem, but it all came at the end of a sermon that Peter preached to all these people, and then in verse 37 of chapter 2, that's the heart of it. It says, when the people heard this, the things that Peter said, they were cut to the heart. So, and the, and the Greek word there or the phrase for cut to the heart is this nice long thing that simply means what they heard frustrated them. It angered them. It prodded them. It got underneath their skin. It, fr- it, uh, it remorse, anxiety. And so what they heard penetrated and they go to Peter and say, what do we do with what you just said? Because we believe in what you just said. What's next for us? And what we learned last week was that baptism is the result of being penetrated by the story of Jesus. It is not the result of tradition. It is not the result of family. It is not the result of church denomination. It is the result of me hearing the story of Jesus. It gets in. It cuts to my heart. And I'm penetrated with the story. And then today, what Paul was telling us about our own baptism is that it was and is, it was the recognition, the moment that I recognized that I needed God's grace. Now we're back to that word. And it is now the reminder that the sum of my life in Christ as a Christian is not just about forgiveness, but a new life altogether. It's time to move on from, I'll just ask for forgiveness later, to you know what, I need to wrestle with this question. Am I supposed to go on like I've been living just to take advantage of God's grace? The last verse uh, that I want to read is 1 Peter 2. And then my friend is going to come up here and tell her story as we close. Uh, Peter in chapter 1, 1 Peter 2, I mean, says in verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, which means you don't feel at home because the way of Jesus is never comfortable in the world, or at least the world isn't comfortable with it. So you feel like an alien or a stranger, perhaps. And maybe you have that story in your own life. And it says to, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So he's, dr- he's addressing the same sort of thing, like be very careful which way you go. But then in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. Fantastic word there. Live such good lives among the pagans. They didn't hold any punches in the scriptures. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, so there's some kind of, you know, they're watching the church. But live such good lives among those people that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Which is a look back to what Jesus said. You're the light of the world, right? And let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the same teaching. It's all the same teaching. You know, it's, you've got this new life. Live it so that the world may look at you and say, that's different. Some of us, all of us, need to at times ask for forgiveness from living a life that counts on God's forgiveness. It's tricky. When we intentionally go into behaviors that we know are contrary to what God desires, and we go into those uh, without looking back simply because we know that God will forgive us, that's when the harsh reality and the difficult reality of of the cross become our easy way out of a disciplined and God-honoring life. And over time, just like a parent to child, the relationship weakens. It falls apart. And baptism is the statement to the world that there is a new thing going on in me, a new life being formed in me, and the old has gone and the new has come. And Paul is simply saying, please be careful with the grace of God. It is not something to just keep cashing in on. And the difficult thing with that challenge is that even if you fail at that, even if you listen to me and say, I don't really care, his grace is still the same. But my guess is your relationship with him is dying. And that's all Paul was addressing is that when you met Jesus, a new thing is happening. And allow that to work and to develop. Each week we've had uh, our friends from the church uh, here come up and share their stories. And I want you to listen uh, very closely to uh, Jacqueline as she closes us out. Let's give it up for Jacqueline.
1: Hi, my name is Jacqueline King, and um, I've been coming to this church about a year and lived in Atlanta for about five and got baptized about a month ago um, right there, which actually feels like a hot tub, so I'd highly recommend it. It was a great experience. (laughs) Um, But Derek asked some of us who have been baptized to tell our stories of uh, coming to Christ and how we decided to become baptized, so here we go. Uh, My journey with Christ started at age 5 on a couch in Iowa. I accepted Christ into my life on a date I had predetermined on a calendar, Type A personalities do start young, to ensure I would be saved when I knew what I was doing and I was ready to start my new life being born again, which was January thirty first, 1989. From there I grew up in a strong and steady Christian household, Regularly going to youth group, mission trips, and church retreats, and relying on God to get my family through tough times of sporadic unemployment. Basically, life wasn't easy, but it was good. God always provided through random ways, and we never went hungry and always had a roof over our heads. Then in high school, my definition of normal changed when I was 15 years old. I went to Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, and as many ask, I was there that day. For the next three years, I went through continuing events following the shooting that were splashed on the front page of the morning news, such as bomb threats, a double homicide of my peers in a drug deal gone bad, having to wear an ID badge to identify myself as a student instead of a journalist trying to buy our yearbooks for lots of money, and so on. I went through many things, including post-traumatic stress disorder, and attended more funerals than I thought I would ever have to at that age. People would ask, Why would God let bad things like this happen to good people? And honestly, I had no idea at that time. The authorities and people who were supposed to be there for me, I thought, in times of crisis like this, had not been there when I needed them, and I started to lose my faith in people and relied on myself to become increasingly independent. After my dad left my family during my junior year of high school, I again started to lose more faith in men, commitment, and parenting overall, who could be trusted anyways. I forgot about God and was putting all of my faith into people, and they kept letting me and my high expectations down. And so I turned to alcohol, which unfortunately was always there when I needed it, but only for a night until the hangover kicked in. I ignored God through college and had one long four-year party, doing pretty well at distracting myself from God's true purpose in my life and doing what I thought I needed at the time. At the end of college, I decided I had enough drama in my life and left to a place where I didn't have a job lined up but I knew no one would know me there, and I could make it my own place, Atlanta. I was determined to make it on my own, control my own destiny, and show everyone back home that I didn't need them to be successful. You can guess what happened next. I moved to Georgia, but my problems came with. I still allowed all that happened in my past to control my future. In the book, The Purpose-Driven Life, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a great book. Uh, Rick Warren described me perfectly when he stated, Many people are driven by guilt. Guilt-driven people are manipulated by memories. They often unconsciously punish themselves by sabotaging their own success. We are products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of it. God's purpose is not limited by your past. God specializes in giving people a fresh start. Real security can only be found in that which can never be taken from you, your relationship with God. This was the point I decided to get baptized. Not because people told me I should do it, not because I thought my life would miraculously be free of troubles and pain and full of rainbows and butterflies, but simply because I was tired of taking control of my own life. It just wasn't working. Even when I ran away from Colorado, even when I turned to temporary pleasures in my life, they all ended up disappointing me in the end. The only one that never let me down once I let go of my stronghold over my own life was God. I decided to get baptized about a month ago to publicly proclaim that I was ready to let God lead my life And I wanted to do it in front of others so I could be held accountable, much like a couple does when they say their wedding vows. Sure, I had claimed I would let go of my life in the past, but this time I was starting anew and I wanted everyone to know. Since then, I have felt released from my past, from the pain, distrust, and feeling like my life was spinning out of control. I've come to realize that God never intended for me to go through significant suffering for no reason, but through the pain I have been able to empathize with others and help those who have gone through tragic events in a way I never thought I could. I truly believe that God's plan is more perfect in every way than any plan I could envision. Jeremiah 29 11 says, I know what I am planning for you. I have good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. I will give you hope and a good future. I hope this encourages anyone out there who is thinking about getting baptized to mark it on your calendar and take a step forward next week. Derek and Jamie really helped made me feel at ease during the process, and I could not have imagined taking the next step in my personal spiritual journey with Christ in any other way. Thank you.
0: Let's all stand and pray, and then... Stay here because we've got one more song uh, to sing as we leave. God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, the truth and the weight of your grace. Thank you for uh, your son who died on the cross for each of us. And though some of us understand that very well, there are others that are still wrestling with what all that means. But God in the middle is a picture of your love for us and um, in that you gave uh, your son's life for us. So God, we stand in this room together Uh, as people who need grace. Uh, But God also encourage us and challenge us to move past banking on your grace and being very careful with our lives. Thank you for the story uh, that you've written on the life of Jacqueline, and we just praise you for all the similar stories in the room and around the world. And it's in your name that we pray, Uh, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.